Adolf Hitler believed that DNA determined destiny, and his fascist allies from Italy to Japan shared this view of eugenics. So imagine their surprise when average Americans, led by a humble Kansas farm boy, beat the best the would-be master races had to offer. We'll meet the generals who cracked the axis next. This isn't just a war. This is a common man's life and death struggle against those who would put him back into slavery. We lose it, and we lose everything. Our homes, the jobs we want to go back to, the books we read, the very food we eat, the hopes we have for our kids, the kids themselves. They won't be ours anymore. That's what's at stake. It's us or them. The chips are down. Two worlds stand against each other. One must die, one must live. 170 years of freedom decrees our answer. Hello, history lovers, and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. Now number one in podcasting, thanks to loyal listeners like you. In this episode, our time machine travels back to meet the commanders who led America to victory in mankind's most terrible conflict. If you know somebody who's going through a rough time in their life, who has a dream and is just tired of the slog of trying to achieve it, I have to recommend today's book. The man leading us through this bit of historical basic training is Benjamin Runkel, a veteran and former paratrooper. He brings us Generals in the Making, how Marshall, Eisenhower, Patton, and their peers became the commanders who won World War II. This book is the first comprehensive history of these men during the interwar years. It's a time when the U.S. armed forces were already tiny, and here they find themselves squeezed even further by the Great Depression and isolationism. History can seem as if everything's a fait accompli, like of course we had generals who'd be able to mastermind something like D-Day. Of course we'd have a patent who was able to turn on a dime and relieve Bastogne. But of course, that's never the case. And if you ever stop to ask yourself how, America was able to produce so many legendary generals, generals so good that even the Germans after defeat praised them, you'll want to pick up this book. These men not only had to learn, they had to overcome the obstacles from their own government. And they did so out of love of country. These officers meant to be ready for the next global conflict, one that they could see looming on the horizon. That meant studying, teaching, and practicing, often with obsolete equipment. It meant serving in posts around the globe that were anything but glamorous. It meant fighting for every dime of military funding as Congress sought to slash, slash, slash. It meant competing with those New Deal programs for money. It meant dealing with PR disasters, like routing those bonus marchers on the Capitol. Veterans of the Great War who wanted their pensions to relieve their suffering during the Great Depression. All these generals we'll meet today made journeys while dealing with the inevitable strains on marriages and family that are part of a soldier's life and all the things that everybody deals with. In addition to Benjamin Runkel's service, for which he earned a bronze star during Operation Iraqi Freedom, 
Our guest has worked as a presidential speechwriter, Department of Defense official, director at the National Security Council, and professional staff member on the House Armed Services Committee. He is currently a senior policy fellow with Artists International and adjunct lecturer in John Hopkins University's Global Security Program. And he holds a PhD from Harvard. Benjamin Runkel's previous book is titled, Wanted Dead or Alive, Manhunts from Geronimo to Bin Laden. You can find more of his work in major newspapers and periodicals, sharing his insights as America navigates the dangers of the 21st century world. Okay, let's meet some very unique Americans, back before they had stars on their shoulders, back between the world wars when they were simply generals in the making. I'm joined on the line by Benjamin Runkel, author of Generals in the Making, How Marshall, Eisenhower, Patton, and Their Peers Became the Commanders Who Won World War II. Thank you for your service, sir, and for making time to chat with the History Author Show. My pleasure, Dean. Well, I had to do this book because I love the idea of people that are becoming, people that are sticking to it despite obstacles, people who have foresight in the case of the men in your book, people who don't let anything stop them, who persevere, because not only do we all need that, but I think when we look at these men that are cast in statues, I've been to Abilene, Kansas, and they have that nice statue of Ike out in front of his childhood home, and you say, wow, he must have just walked out that door and everybody knew that he was great and never had a (laughs) rainy day in his life. Look at him, he's always smiling, right? I feel that that lets us off the hook. And then we say, well, he he had it easy. And so, and he was special, so we don't really need to. It's the thing that people sometimes complain about the great man theory of history. It lets us off the hook if we say, well, we can't possibly do that. There was something special to them. They are special, but this requires perseverance to achieve their goal, their destinies. You kick off Generals in the Making on September 18, 1919, at the pier in my old hometown of Hoboken, New Jersey. You focus the reader's attention on a young colonel who's standing behind General John J. Pershing, commander of the Great War Expeditionary Force. Who was that young man, and why choose that moment of triumph to open the book? Well, to set the scene a bit, Pershing's homecoming from France was really a spectacular occasion. He returned with his staff on the USS Leviathan, an ocean liner that could carry up to 14,000 people. And as soon as they approached the eastern seaboard, a flotilla of tugboats came out from New York Harbor to provide an honor guard, as well as two Navy destroyers with the VIPs like the Secretary of War, various senators. Planes flew overhead, the tugboats sprayed water cannons into the air, and sirens announced the news of Pershing's arrival to New York City. And in the photographs from that day, both taken on the ship and on the dock, as well as one or two others from the voyage, you consistently see one officer standing beside him or behind him with sandy hair and blue eyes. And this colonel, he hadn't served in the trenches, he hadn't performed any conspicuous acts of bravery in France, so the correspondents waiting on the docks in Hoboken wouldn't have had any idea who he was. But of course, this was Colonel George C. Marshall, who although he was a very important staff officer during the war, he'd only become Pershing's aide a few months earlier. And I argue that although everybody else was understandably focused on Pershing, that from the broader perspective of military history, 
Marshall would prove to be the most important officer on the dock that day. I mean, if you think about it, 20 years later, Marshall would be asked to recruit, train, equip, and deploy an army more than twice the size of Pershing's American expeditionary force. And he'd face an axis that had already conquered most of Europe and most of East Asia. But as Winston Churchill would later describe him, Marshall was, quote, the organizer of victory in probably the most important war in human history. So I chose that moment to open the book, as well as the sort of the bookend with the closing scene of the, in the epilogue in 1953, in which all the attendees at Queen Elizabeth's coronation at Westminster Abbey rise to their feet to honor Marshall as he walks to his seat. I, I chose it because I think it illustrates that we often can't tell what or who is really significantly significant when we're living in the moment, that there's the potential for greatness in what seem like relatively anonymous people, and that often the true significance of people and events only become clear with the added perspective of time. And you have this great nugget in Generals in the Making that illustrates that point. You talk about Marshall being lost in that crowd, and I'm thinking of his family and how they always go, right, and they ask your family, do you have greatness? And it reminds you of a moment in that farmhouse where Eisenhower's statue is, his childhood home, and they go and ask his mother, well, you're proud of your son. And she says, which one? Because she has five sons and she's proud of all of them. And even though one of them happens to eventually be Supreme Allied Commander and President of the United States, people always ask for, they go to you and they say, well, did you expect greatness in this or that person? You must have when they were young. And I love that George C. Marshall's brother thinks so little of him that he tries to keep him out of Virginia Military Institute because he wants to protect the family name. And he's so sure that George is going to screw up there. He's going to do something that, that he's going to fail out or he's going to do something to bring, not, not live up to the standards of the family. And yet here's a young man that grows up to hold nearly every significant staff job in the U.S. Army. And he influences not just the war, but the post-war world. And I think that in that moment, you can see why I find Generals in the Making so riveting and so attractive as something to read. Because we all have people, even family, and family is the most painful thing. You figure they know you the best. If they whisper something in your ear, maybe they're just trying to be helpful. He doesn't want George to be shamed. But you carry that forever, and it's easy to say, well, hey, my own family doesn't believe in me, then what's the point? And yet he doesn't. So introduce us a little bit to him. George C. Marshall, what is his legacy, and what are some of the things he has to overcome here in the process of generals in the making? Well, that's a great question. I think, you know, it's very interesting that when you look at Marshall's early years in Uniontown, Pennsylvania, I mean, what stands out is how utterly unremarkable he was although he was distantly descended from Supreme Court Chief Justice John Marshall. As you say, he wasn't a brilliant student. He wasn't such a standout athlete that everyone in the town said, oh, he's destined for great things. There was nothing similar in his upbringing to say MacArthur's father had been a Civil War hero and was a commander in the Philippines, or Patton had a strong family heritage of military service that would have suggested the career and achievements that lay ahead. Even at VMI, Marshall wasn't distinguished so much for his academic achievement, but rather for his just unequal discipline or record in military discipline, going four years without earning a single demerit. And this isn't to say he was perfect. He snuck out off campus at night numerous times during his senior year, which if you've ever been down to VMI's campus and its proximity to the town of Lexington, that's pretty amazing to be able to get away with that incredible risk. But he did this in order to court his future wife, Lily. But 
generally speaking, except to pitch Wu, he never slipped. He was never off and he never failed to give full effort in anything he tried to do. And I think that this is what made him such an effective leader over the next 40 to 50 years, that he held his subordinates to rigorously high standards and you know, very quickly found out which officers measured up and who didn't. He relates the story in the pre-World War II mobilization when he asked the commander of the combined general staff school, we need a new manual, we need it in four months. And the guy said, I can't do it in less than 18. And he said, well, then you're going to be relieved. He held him to standards. He relates how he lost a personal friend. He said, we need you for an assignment in France. And the guy said, I can't go this week. My wife's out of town and I won't be able to pack up my stuff. And he said, if you can't go tomorrow, then you're going to be retired. And he sacrificed a friendship for having these high standards of being able to perform on duty. I think what inspired the people to work so hard for him was that he held himself to these same high standards as well. And in the pre-war mobilization, when they made the rule that, you know, to sort of cut out the dead weight of older, out-of-shape officers, to clear the Army's hierarchy, to let younger, more vigorous officers take positions of command, it included reducing the mandatory retirement age of generals to 60. And so he twice submitted his own resignation to FDR because he was over the age limit. And FDR, of course, just couldn't conceive that he was serious and laughed off his resignation both times. And so I think just that what he brought to these positions and then later the positions of just the expectations of performance and that he was willing to embody that himself, raise the standards and made every institution that he was a part of as high performing as it could possibly be. I want to go back to that moment standing on the pier because that's a moment of great pomp and circumstance. You love to see those ships firing the water into the air. You love the stories of the boys leaving from Hoboken. President Wilson addresses them from the top of the Clambroth House. And it's a great time in that moment for those particular men. But veterans of the Great War in general receive a very different welcome home than those who served in more recent conflicts, such as yourself, certainly than the World War II generation. That peacetime army is one that's unrecognizable to us today. Describe life in that peacetime army, because many of these generals in the making choose to stay in uniform, and they even take pay cuts, they'll take backwater postings overseas, they go... 15 years maybe without a promotion. So many of their comrades in arms who were on that ship that day just choose more lucrative, cushy civilian professions because there's simply no room for advancement in the peacetime military. So why do they do that? What makes these particular generals in generals in the making decide they're going to stick? Well, I mean, there was a lot of reasons, you know, it varied with each different with each different officer. I mean, some did it out of, you know, a sense of duty, a sense of patriotism. Some, especially during the Great Depression, did it largely because there just weren't any jobs available otherwise. Others just loved the ceremony. They loved the life, the pageantry. They loved the camaraderie. I mean, it's true, as you say, that I think many of the officers who would become commanders in World War II did have options either immediately after the war during the interwar years to get out as the army shrunk from 3 million down to 300,000 and then down to about 150,000, which caused reductions in rank. The Great Depression caused reductions in pay. Even when they were on duty, they didn't have modern equipment to train on. They didn't have resources for training. So, but in the immediate years after the war, you know, one of the junior officers who served at Camp Colt 
under Eisenhower during the war offered him a position in his manufacturing firm in Muncie, Indiana. That would have been double his salary as a lieutenant colonel. During the Depression, Ike was offered a position in, as the military editor for the Hearst newspaper chain that would pay more than five times his army salary. MacArthur was offered in the 1920s an executive position with J.P. Morgan and Company. And my personal favorite was Matthew Ridgway, who, after managing West Point's athletic department, turned down a front office position with the New York baseball giants. And so they stayed in for all these various reasons. I think, though, when George Patton proposed marriage to Beatrice Ayers, his future father-in-law wouldn't consent to the marriage until Patton explained why he chose the military as a profession rather than something respectable like law or business. And Patton essentially said he couldn't explain it. It was just something he felt in his blood and came as natural to him as breathing. And I think that if asked, a lot of the officers would have said something similar and that that intangible sense of belonging and sense of purpose is what helped to carry one of the things that helped carry them through the years of hardship in the interwar years. To illustrate the low regard that these soldiers would have been held in, you say that there would be signs in stores that would say, no dogs and soldiers allowed. And I looked up in some old newspapers just to see stories about that. I just looked up that phrase at newspaper.com and in the New York Times Time Machine. And it was indeed the case. Reminds me of Andrew Jackson's army, right? Those guys, frontiersmen, peeing in the streets of New Orleans and (laughs) no, no real discipline. And I don't think the great war soldiers were of that level. But people still had that fear, that dread of a standing army. Somebody in uniform still worried them a little. Maybe they had flashbacks to Cromwell. So... It's really a time where these men have to stick in it for love, for something that's intangible, for that sense of duty. And I think of Ulysses S. Grant, who we're going to talk about a little later, because it's very similar, his path, his failing at everything, having a lot of time to struggle, a lot of personal challenges, and then he achieves greatness and he saves the nation the way that these men do in generals in the making. And he wears his uniform the first time, his dress uniform, and people mock him and laugh at him. He never wears it again. In fact, when he meets Lee to take his surrender, he's famously just wearing a private shirt, I, I believe, or a corporal's jacket, and he's, he's just muddy, and he, he doesn't really care. And here's Lee, who's resplendent. And I felt that way with these men. I felt they're not getting the respect we would think. There's not a GI Bill for them. The benefits are constantly being slashed, the pay. And I think that's a great reminder that that's not why people enlisted to fight. That's not why they stayed in the military. They did it out of a real sense of duty. And when they didn't get that welcome, they didn't say, well, the heck with you. We're not going to risk our lives anymore. In fact, it's Douglas MacArthur. He faces a very different homecoming with his Rainbow Division when they disembark on that same Hoboken Pier. And I'm sure he was expecting that big welcome home, and he doesn't get it. He goes to West Point, takes charge, and his leadership impacts these generals. He could have just walked off into civilian life there. He could have could have been a young soldier that just faded away, right? <laughs> but he doesn't. He, he goes up to West Point. What influence does he make there on this generation of leaders? But I think MacArthur at West Point is one of the more interesting case studies. And so in short, he comes back in, some, in 1919 and is basically summoned to the chief of staff's office, Peyton March. And Peyton March says to him, that West Point, the U.S. Military Academy, is 40 years behind the time in terms of academics, and he was likely being generous. And so he assigns MacArthur, who had no academic background per se, to go and basically reform and innovate. This stems from, in the 19th century, West Point was arguably the most important engineering school in America. And after the Civil War, 
and the leadership of Grant and Sherman, Lee and Jackson, the sort of veneration of that generation of military leaders led to the curriculum and methods of teaching essentially being frozen. They said, look, we've perfected it. We don't need to do anything more. And at the time, the subject matter was almost purely technical. And rather than being taught critical thinking skills, the cadets learned by rote memorization. That plus the fact that the academy's rigid discipline system discouraged any independent thinking or problem solving. And on top of these systemic problems that basically American academics would look at would look at West Point and just sort of shake their heads at how backwards its teaching was. In 1919, West Point was in utter chaos. In order to meet the exigencies of the war, the academy had graduated five classes of cadets in 18 months. And there was a dangerous break in the continuity of its traditions and discipline that led to a cadet suicide in January 1919 due to excessive hazing. So MacArthur comes and he has this vision for reforming his alma mater that was incredibly ambitious. He believed that, unlike the past, that future wars would require a different type of officer than those that had been successful in the past. This is based on what he had seen in combat and then in the occupation of Germany after the war. And so although the academy had been founded in an age when wars were fought by small professional armies led by officers who used rigid discipline and harsh punishments to control men in battle, to him, World War I had shown that conflicts in the 20th century were more likely to be massive struggles that required the rousing of entire nations to arms. So MacArthur goes about liberalizing cadet life and reforming the academy's disciplinary rules to increase cadet responsibility. He emphasized athletics to improve cadet stamina and teamwork. He expanded the academic curriculum beyond strictly technical subjects and encouraged innovation in teaching methods. And he updated the academy's military training to reflect the Great War's tactical lessons learned. Now, although MacArthur's vision was essentially correct, even I think MacArthur's fans would acknowledge that he was pretty arrogant and his hubris in implementing these changes offended the traditionalists on the academic board and amongst the alumni in the army. And so he was relieved a year early as superintendent and the next superintendent who replaced him basically undid all of the reforms that he did. But after this sort of conservative reaction, his innovations were restored over the next two decades and so would have had an influence, not so much on the generals of World War II, but in the battalion and brigade commanders. I mean, the things that he thought were essentially right, Marshall independently came to the same conclusions and implemented things to creative problem solving, incorporating economics and psychology thinking into commanding civilian conscripts when he was the assistant commandant of the infantry school from 27 to 32. One difference, I think, between the two, and I think where MacArthur actually missed an opportunity. So I think Stephen Ambrose gets it right when he says that MacArthur is the father of modern West Point, that everything that West Point does good now derives in some way from what MacArthur's reforms were. But MacArthur also missed an opportunity to influence the World War II generals, I think, by failing to serve as a mentor to the junior instructors at West Point, which included Bradley, Ridgeway, Lightning Joe Collins, Jacob Devers, Courtney Hodges. But MacArthur was very aloof, and he lived in the superintendent's mansion with his mother, avoided social contact with the faculty, much less tried to impart leadership development lessons to these leaders. I mean, I think Bradley recalled that he never saw MacArthur other than at athletic events and couldn't recall a single exchange with him. So MacArthur, and this was part of his genius, he was absolutely right in the reforms that were needed. And it had an influence, I would say, with the brigade, battalion commanders, perhaps even some of the later company commanders. But it was interesting that it's more at that level and that at future generations than on the World War II generals specifically. 
you say the word aloof and you talk about MacArthur missing the opportunity and those men missing the opportunity to exchange ideas and strategies and experience with him. And it reminded me of how many times in Generals in the Making, we find these great men as young men dealing with each other. Ike and Patton live next door to each other at Camp Mead in 1920. Think of 1920. That's 30 years before Eisenhower is going to be considered for the White House even. It's long before World War II, before the U.S.'s entry. Think of how young they were. We get to meet them here in your book, and we get to see them bond, and we get to see them exchange ideas. Omar Bradley and Matthew Ridgway, they're out hunting and golfing together while instructors at West Point. It reminded me of Nixon and JFK. There's that famous time when they're freshman house members and they're dreaming of the future on a train together. And you just wish now you could be a fly on the wall. And of course, we'd wish we could be a fly on the wall with Ike and Patton, right? At a poker game there. You know, there's a, there's a great moment with Mamie when she talks uh, to the wrong person about his great, his great poker skills of her husband. You have to pick up the book to hear that particular anecdote. But I loved seeing that. I loved seeing these young men get to know each other. And then I thought with my writer's hat on that that story structure is such a challenge to do a group biography it means you have to keep straight. You have to give everybody a little time together. People are familiar with the Marvel movies now where you think about all those characters. They each have to have their own moment. Then they have to each interact with everybody else. And lo and behold, you illustrate that here in Generals in the Making with a line graph that tethers these men together. And visually, it was even a greater web, a larger web of relationships than I had thought I would find. And it's amazing that they're all somehow having some interaction with each other. So my question is, how do you keep the book lean? Because this book may sound like it's 2,000 pages if you're going to deal with all these titanic figures and all these stories, but it clocks in at under 400 pages. It's something you could pick up and take to the beach. I know that in publishing, people use beach read to dismiss something as fluffy, but why not read Generals in the Making at the Beach this summer? I think to myself, that was such a challenge for you. And I wanted to ask you, how did you go about keeping it tight and still give us a fair portrait of the interwar years? And did maybe your speechwriting experience help you with that, to get a message down in a nice, tight bullet form? Oh, I don't, I think most of the people I write speeches for would say, man, he has a hard time getting things down, at least on first drafts, <laughs> in a hard bullet form. But actually, I, you know, and surprisingly, perhaps, I don't think, for me, it wasn't that difficult with this book. I mean, I first had the idea for this book when I was a first lieutenant in the 82nd Airborne in the late 1990s. And on a day off, I was enjoying a drink and a cigar on my balcony and reading Henry Kissinger's Diplomacy. And I came across the fact that when Germany invaded Poland in 1939, the U.S. Army was only the 17th largest army in the world. And it was just such a stupefying revelation to me that when you think now we spend more on defense than the next seven countries in the world, back then we were comparable in, our, in the size of our army, at least, to Portugal and Bulgaria. And this made me wonder, you know, how such a remarkable group of commanders emerged from such a resource-deprived force. And for the next 15 years or so, before I had the opportunity to start really serious research for the book, I was thinking about this topic, and I made an Excel spreadsheet, essentially the top line being all the four-star officers, and then I tried to fill in with each subsequent horizontal line or each row where they were for each year between 1918 and 1942. And then once I filled in every block, color coding where the common postings and from that spreadsheet, the picture literally, I mean, quite literally color wise, and I still have this somewhere in my office, 
painted itself. And so, you know, whereas it's common today for officers who haven't seen each other after served together for many years or haven't seen each other in many years to joke about it being a small army, it was an incredibly small army in the interwar years with only 12,000 officers. And they tended to get funneled into the same schools, into that they had similarity in their posting patterns. So there was inevitably a great deal of overlap in their assignments and postings, which sort of on its own created the structure for how to tell the story. And I think it was a matter of trying to capture which points of overlap could best encapsulate not only the story of the interwar army as an institution, for example, discussing what all these future commanders experienced as they went through Fort Leavenworth at the Army War College, or they served overseas in China, the Philippines, but also to show their personal stories in order to show that they weren't just, as you mentioned, the granite statues we think of them as today, but that they were once, you know, junior captains and majors with doubts about whether their careers would go anywhere, that they had personal hardships, they had to go home at night, what was going on with their family lives, et cetera. So to be able to find a balance for it. And I think in the end, there are only two chapters. If I had Ron Chernow's clout and could write 800, 900 pages a shot, there, I think there's still only two additional chapters. I wish I'd been able to tell a bit more the story of the Army Air Corps, maybe focusing on Hap Arnold, but he was at such a separate remove. And in most cases, I couldn't bring it into the main story. And then I also sort of want to do something of George Marshall as a strategist in the grand strategy in 1941, I think is underexplored at times, but it just couldn't fit into sort of, as you say, the narrative momentum. But otherwise, I think really capturing, and I think that, you know, one of the problems with the historiography of this period is that almost all the the biographies and the World War II histories skip over that era very quickly in order to get to the start of the war. And so I think that, at least hope, I was able to capture that sense of why this era is important, why it foreshadowed their experiences, foreshadowed how they commanded during the war itself. Well, having read Generals in the Making, I can say it definitely captured it for me. And I like that notion of not skipping over this entire period. I mean, it's very easy to just say, well, let's hurry up and, and get to the shooting. Let's hurry up and get to D-Day. Let's hurry up and get to the action. We all like the action, right? It's Saving Private Ryan doesn't start off with them at West Point doing theoretical work. It starts off in the heat of battle with those men storming ashore. So that's understandable. But for us personally, we learn, I think, more about ourselves and how to live our own lives from history by seeing these men at their lowest, by seeing all their disappointments. Eisenhower and Matthew Ridgway, they never see action during the war. They have assignments, these men, such as patrolling the U.S.-Mexico border. Omar Bradley is posted with the 14th Infantry. He's there in Montana protecting a copper mine far, far from the front. He doesn't have to worry about the rampaging Huns much all the way out there. And that's another one of those moments in your book where it would be so easy for these men to say, oh, well, forget it. I, I missed out on the war as they see it. I'm not going to get a promotion. They didn't think enough of me to send me over there. In Ike's case, he's known to be a really good administrator. That's why they keep him away. But still, that, that's not much of a consolation when everybody's sitting around telling war stories and that they saw the elephant, as they said, in the Great War. So these men stick with that. But I wanted you to give a moment to talk about their World War I service because all of them didn't go over there and have experience. And yet in the next war, they're the key guys. Yeah, I think that was something interesting, sort of the commonality 
in, you know, Omar Bradley, Joseph Collins, Matthew Ridgway and Eisenhower, and many of these guys who didn't get the opportunity to serve, and they all wanted to, and they all felt a, such a, a very deep sense of regret, feeling that they were left out, the feeling that they would be looked down upon. I think it had two large impacts on them. One, I think it motivated them very much to try and excel, to try and be at the head of their classes when they went to the army schools to just be better at everything. Eisenhower basically said, from now on, I'm going to make my mark. I'm not going to be remembered as the guy who never made it over to France. And I think that was a highly motivating factor for him to finish first in his class at the command and general staff school, to just be excellent in every duty that he was given. And I think that was likely true of Bradley, Ridgway, Collins, and the others. The other thing that I think, though, is it made them arguably less fixed in their ideas about war because they didn't have experiences of the Western front of the trenches seared into their minds. Huh. So they, I think they were generally more open to learning from others who had, you know, at West Point when Bradley and Ridgway were, you know, young junior instructors, every time Ridgway arranged so that when the officers would come back from occupation duty to join the faculty, he arranged it so that they would essentially give tactical tutoring lessons twice a week to the officer in the officer's quarters to those who hadn't been able to deploy. And so there was a hunger for them to learn from those who had been there. But also, they, as I say, they weren't as fixed necessarily in their ideas of what war looked like. And therefore, I think we're more amenable to sort of innovation and creative thinking about what the next war. And almost everybody in the professional officer class believed there would be another war in 20 to 25 years that their minds were, they were a bit more open-minded, less rigid than some of the senior officers who came back from France and assumed the next war would look like World War One. Still fighting the last war, as they say. These guys had more, you know, these guys clearly are, their attention to detail, I don't know if there's a, I'm sure there's a better way to say it, and you do it here at length in Generals in the Making, but that's what amazed me was that they go at it with such a fresh perspective. And you mentioned the phrase problem solving. I wrote that down because think of the logistics for anything, but especially something as massive as D-Day and for moving this whole army over there. It's another one of those things. It's easy to look at the history books and just assume that it happened. Of course it happened. Of course we went over there and we did all these things just happened, but they didn't. They had to really know. It's another parallel with Grant being a quartermaster and knowing supply my troops or the war in Cuba was another thing. William McKinley had been a quartermaster. Zachary Taylor, President Zachary Taylor, he'd been Grant's commander in the war, and he really appreciated Grant's efforts. Um, another thing about being a soldier, Grant goes into the water. He orders some men to move out. I think it's a log or something like this out of the water, and they don't really get how to do it. And Grant gets off his horse, jumps in the water, and starts helping. And the commissioned officers are mocking him to Zachary Taylor and saying, oh, oh, he got down in the mud with the enlisted men and in the water. And Taylor says, I wish I had 100 more men like Grant or something to that effect. Because that's what you want. You want people who don't have that voice in the back of their mind, from what I read in Generals in the Making, that's telling them the things that aren't really related to the task at hand. You want to be able to achieve victory, and that's the goal. And they all have such innovative minds, and we all know, we all know about Patton being able to turn on a dime and relieve Bastogne, but this is how. That doesn't happen overnight. That takes a lot of planning and learning and studying, and 
even tears. You know, Patton gets upset with himself, so depressed. It's an amazing moment. Who would think of him putting his head on Eisenhower's shoulder and, and weeping? <laughs> but the guy has all these heavy emotions right at the front. He's drinking too much at one point in your book. Those guys all are such fascinating studies, and I think it reminds us that we need to step up and that we can step up in whatever we're facing, deaths and trials and tribulations, lack of promotion, feeling forgotten. This book is such an inspiring one for anybody feeling that way. No, agreed. And the book began as an institutional history, in my mind at least, an institutional history, a how-to for young lieutenants. And so I think that while the book still works as a work of military history, when you get down to it, in a sense, it's also the story of a group of middle-aged men toiling in what seemed like a dying profession, earning lower salaries than their peers in other fields, and despite being talented and motivated, often going a decade or more without promotion. And indeed, at one point, you know, as we said, they had to accept pay cuts and forfeit earned vacation time just to save their jobs. And consequently, you know, at some point, every one of the World War II commanders considered leaving the service. But in, in addition to these personal professional frustrations, most of them suffered some form of personal tragedy in these years, including deaths of spouses or children, divorce, depression, alcoholism, even legal troubles. And yet, when the world faced possibly its darkest hour, you know, with fascism and barbarism on the march across four continents, they stood ready to lead America's young men in the fight for civilization. And so... Even though even most officers today, much less you or I, most of us will never likely lead ever lead a division or corps into battle. I think that most people endure hardships and setbacks similar to those endured by the generals between the wars at some points in their lives. I mean, think about now, today, during the current pandemic, how many people are out of work, how many people are having tragedies in their family with, with personal health issues, et cetera that hopefully people who are going through what they're going now even can draw some inspiration from how Marshall, Eisenhower, Patton et al. overcame similar obstacles in their lifetimes. You're enjoying my conversation with Benjamin Runkle, author of Generals in the Making, How Marshall, Eisenhower, Patton, and Their Peers Became the Commanders Who Won World War II. Kevin Carroll writes in the Washington Examiner, Runkle's book is ultimately inspiring. Patton, MacArthur, Marshall, and Eisenhower had personal and professional problems with which many empathize or sympathize. They bounced back and came through for America when it counted the most. They led an army of 190,000 soldiers in 1939 to become one of 8.3 million men in 1945, and triumphed over evil to defeat Nazi Germany and the Empire of Japan. Kevin Carroll also notes that Generals in the Making introduces us to middle-aged men, as you just mentioned. Year after disappointing year, they continue their dedication as their hair thins and turns gray. Here's Marshall. You mentioned that he tries to retire twice because he hits the 60 retirement age. So these are not men that are young. They're not in their 20s and 30s going out there and, and trying to fight and hear the, the whiz of bullets. They're older. They've experienced. They've seen so much life. They've seen a lot of hardship, pay cuts. There's a near-fatal accident that almost takes out both Ike and Patton. Like if people want to 
play alternate history or write an alternate history novel. Imagine how the world would be different. They they come literally inches from losing their lives or being severely crippled in when they're they're I'll say playing around with tanks. They're studying them, but you know <laughs> tanks are pretty cool. So it's it's easy to it's easy to not really be thinking and to be in awe of these great machines, these great steel horses that they're trying to figure out how they're going to use them in the next war. So many low points, and I wanted to bring it back to Ulysses S. Grant, who has those very, very hard years, who is also older when he achieves command and has experienced a lot. And since he is stuck with so much in his life, just like your generals and generals in the making, Grant isn't as prone to just giving up. He's not, he doesn't have that gun shyness that you spoke about or alluded to a little bit about men who had fought in the Great War. In his case, it would have been the Mexican War which Grant opposed, by the way. So he wasn't steeped in that thinking for that war. I recently interviewed Donald L. Miller about his book, Vicksburg, Grant's campaign that broke the Confederacy. There are many parallels between your generals and Grant's wilderness years. So I asked Professor Miller to suggest a question for you. He asked, did any of your generals have the strategic genius of Ulysses Grant who saw the Civil War on a continental basis and coordinated the movements of all Union armies? That's a great question, and it's funny. I just two weeks ago gave a talk at the Army-Navy Club here in D.C., and someone else brought up the parallel between Ulysses S. Grant's interwar years between the Mexican and Civil Wars and the interwar years between World War I and II. As far as strategic genius, I think the answer is yes and no. Um, that the interwar army was fairly provincial and very few officers had an opportunity with American isolationism, a foreign policy that thought, you know, through the um, Kellogg-Briand Treaty that they'd abolished war. So they didn't necessarily, very few officers had an opportunity to consider what today we call geostrategy or war beyond the operational level. I mean, I think only MacArthur and Marshall had an opportunity to fully consider this level of strategy I think MacArthur, for example, badly overvalued the Philippines' strategic importance, partly because of his sentimental attachment to the islands and its people. And Marshall got off to a rough start as a strategist at the Arcadia Conference, and he opposed Operation Torch. I think Eisenhower had a good understanding of strategy, thanks to the exposure to these issues he'd gained as a protege of Fox Connor in the early 1920s who basically gave him what he called sort of a, a graduate education in military history and strategic thinking. And then also when he took over the War Plans Division in 1942, he showed a good sense of strategy. And despite Patton and Montgomery's criticisms, I think, and this is, you know, this is endlessly debated by World War II historians, I think that his broad front strategy was likely necessary to impose a sufficiently severe defeat on Germany to therefore eliminate it for good as a strategic threat. Another officer from this generation that I don't think gets a lot of attention in this regards was then Major Albert Wiedemeyer, who, you know, in one of the great ironies of history, he was a he was a major in the late thir- in the late 30s, 1941. Despite being a staunch isolationist, he was anti-Semitic and he thought some officers in the War Department thought he was sympathetic to Nazism. But Marshall recognized his intellectual abilities and tasked him with doing a report to say, what do we need for everything in the war? In September 1941, he wrote what became known as the Victory Plan that pretty accurately outlined that Allied strategy for the war in terms of objectives and the men and means needed to achieve them. To 
just very briefly go back to Marshall and MacArthur, just so I'm not overly harsh on them. I think by 1944, Marshall was a great was a good strategist and had come to be seen by even the skeptical senior British generals who tended to look down on Americans concept of strategy that he was seen as first among equals on the Allied combined chiefs of staff. And after his initial disaster in the Philippines, which resulted from his arrogance and dishonesty regarding the Philippines forces preparedness, and I think his own incompetence in the archipelago's defense, for which arguably he should have been relieved, MacArthur's Pacific campaign was brilliant strategically. I mean, he very early and very uniquely amongst the gener- his generation recognized that air power would allow him to bypass and outflank Japanese strongholds and therefore avoid the grinding attritional campaign most generals that era would have chosen to conduct. I don't think this would have translated as well to the European theater, perhaps to the Italian theater, to Italy. But, you know, one cannot deny that MacArthur, for whatever his initial missteps, got the big picture strategy-wise right in the Pacific campaign. The Great War, that kicking off moment, the return to normalcy after the fighting ends and the Doughboys come home, it leads to the Jazz Age. That What period could you think of? You know, the Roaring Twenties, more different than the Great Depression that follows it. The Jazz Age and the and Prohibition and all of those things, it seems like such an exciting time. Women are enjoying greater rights. They can vote for president for the first time in the 1920 election, universally in every state. But these men over this period, the interwar years, they deal with very different administrations, starting with Harding and Coolidge, then Herbert Hoover, then FDR, and his New Deal. They also deal with ever stingier Congresses who just don't want to spend the money. That's one thing that leads to the bonus marchers and demanding their payments now for their service. How do these men adapt to the civilian leadership? It's a pretty small army. These men rise to those positions where they are going to be going in and speaking with presidents of the United States. How do they deal with that? How do they accommodate that part of this? Because people are constantly trying really to cut their job, to shrink the army, to to render them obsolete because they need the money elsewhere. I think there are two things. I think one thing that I I think you're capturing very well, and in the book I, I hopefully capture well, is the difference in what are modern attitudes that today, consistently when they do public opinion polling, what are the most respected institutions in the United States? And the U.S. military consistently rates the highest. In those days, it would have rated toward generally towards the bottom. That, as you said in the anecdote about shops saying no dogs or soldiers, that when even edu- when educated people wrote about the military in those days, they did so with just such condescension just misunderstanding or not able to comprehend why someone would subject themselves to orders, you know, why someone would live this kind of lifestyle. I think that the men who did this, one, that they, because there was no budget for housing, they basically still lived for the most part on very isolated posts that today, like if you live in the Washington DC area, you're used to seeing the Metro, if you take the subway into work every day, you'll see 10 to 20, you'll see a few dozen military people on their way commuting to an office. That just never happened in those days, that foreign officers were something very foreign and exotic. And so that for the most part, the officers, they were in a closed society. Very rarely were they ever exposed to sort of how how little respected they were. So they weren't as affected with that. I also would say that there's probably, for lack of a better term, a certain stoicism that, again, many of these officers, when they saw that they saw during the occupation of Germany, 
They saw the failure of the Treaty of Versailles, the failure of the League of Nations. They knew another war was coming at some point, and many of them felt determined, not just the ones who hadn't been there, but they felt a sense of, I need to stay in, I need to see this through, I need to be here when it, when it happens. And so I think they were, even though they were scorned by the general public, they did not feel it as directly as, because they weren't as integrated into society as military people are today. We talked a couple times about General MacArthur, and he's one of the most familiar names from the war. He certainly knew how to do PR for himself and get written down in the pages of history. And yet I note that he didn't achieve a spot on the cover of Generals in the Making. <laughs> one, of the, one of the things you do cover in there is the Bonish Army, and that's a, that's a moment of nexus. We talked about him being aloof and so not as connected as some of the others, but during that event, he's there with Eisenhower and Patton. He's commanding both of them. So that's a moment that brings the three of them together. What does that tell us about him, and why didn't he make it on your cover? Well, the, the pub, that was a publisher's decision. Ah. I, I think at some point, I have, I have no, look, I, quite frankly, I have no design ability. I think I probably in my mind had some sort of conception of like a five, of five stars of a star with five points and a picture of each of them. And that probably would have looked terrible. I like the cover design as they did it. It was ultimately their decision. And I apologize to MacArthur fans who feel slighted by it because he does have narrative follows him and his trajectory and his trajectory into war years is a fascinating one because there was no single officer who was capable of greater brilliance. His reform of West Point was way ahead of the time and is still felt today. His empathy to Filipino forces in the 1920s at a time when a lot of officers were, if not outright racist, were just not very empathetic to their enlisted people. And he had a much better sense of how to work with them. He thought, you know, it's a, you know, it's a great dramatic moment that he had been bred literally all his life and trained by his family to someday be army chief of staff, the one position denied to his father. And that when he finally rises to that position, it's at a time when the army is a complete disaster and in shambles. And in rather than being able to make a great mark on history as chief of staff, he ends up fighting a, a very important rear, but a rear guard action to save what he can of the army's budgets and to save the army officer corps, which was very, turned, proved to be very important for World War II. But then he, somewhere at the, in, after being chief of staff, it's the sort of question, he was still relatively young, he was still only in his early 50s, and it became a question of, what do you do when you've achieved your life's goal and you still have a lot of life left to live? And I don't know if something, I don't wanna say something snapped in him, but from there, he takes a very weird downward turn in the 1930s, um, that his aloofness, his arrogance starts to become almost a self-fulfilling prophecy, and he undermines himself at every turn, one of which was the Bonus Army. I think the Bonus Army is one of the most fascinating episodes in American history that most people don't understand, don't, don't even know what it was. At the time, it was the largest single protest in Washington, D.C. We get used to now in D.C. seeing on both the right and the left protests that reach up to hundreds and thousands of people. But in that day, it was completely unheard of. It pits the veterans of World War One essentially against the U.S. Army and when it degenerated into riots. Whereas one has sympathy for the, you know, impoverished, destitute veterans to have fulfilled the bonus payment that they wanted to have it paid 10 years early, because these guys were in very desperate straits. They had no jobs. Their families were starving. 
but it would have equaled almost the entire budget of the United States government in those days. It was just financially, and even people on the left who were sympathetic to the suffering that the veterans were enduring, just said, there's no way we can't afford this. If we pay this now, we don't have money for all the other millions of people who are starving. So it's a very fascinating, fascinating dilemma. And then when you get to the day where the Washington decides to evict them, MacArthur was truly a hardliner. He saw there were communist plots in the country. I mean, there you know, there'd been other demonstrations where where Communist Party members had led and had turned the violence in other cities in America. And even though his own intelligence staff had investigated and say, yeah, the Bonus Army is cracking down pretty hard on any communists that try and infiltrate their camps, he saw it through that lens. He saw it through his self-anointed you know, role as saving the Republic and therefore authorized. The army, it wasn't, the force wasn't excessive. The burning down of the, the veterans camp, about 11,000 people, had their had their shanty town on Anacostia Flat burnt down, but he was definitely overzealous in his persecution of it. And in his press conference at the end of the riots, and fortunately there was only one fatality in the riots. It was unfortunately a baby who had a previous existing condition that the tear gas exasperated and was tragic. But generally speaking, the army dealt with it fairly professionally. But he gives this sort of ridiculous press conference saying that they were all communists. Maybe only 10 percent of them were veterans when subsequent investigations by the army department, by the War Department, found there were over 95 percent veterans. He said it was a real dangerous mob. You know, we really saved the day. It was just an utterly ridiculous performance that was at odds with the reality that people had seen. And it scarred the army's reputation for a number of years. I noted the fact that he goes in there and the reports he gives a few times are, I guess we would say today, CYA, right? He's trying to, he's trying to cover his reputation. He's trying to protect himself and his, and I think that that grew out of a lot of this in this war. There's different ways to deal with, with all this adversity that these men are facing. And one of the ways is you put the best spin you can on your performance. And that's something he does there. And Patton and Eisenhower end up looking much better. Eisenhower, the bonus army, the the routing of those men out of there, that follows him all the way until he's in the White House. People are still talking about it and using it to, to attack him. So really a moment that there's not nothing happening. It's a reminder, that moment, the bonus army, is that it's not nothing happening in these people do the Charleston a few times and that's it, we have Prohibition and Al Capone and then bang, there's another world war. And so I like that you looked at that period. I mentioned to you before we started recording that I could do a second world war book every day of the week and never run out. But this book deals with the becoming. It's the it's the origin story. It's almost a prequel. It's really how these men develop and how that guy who is so vivid, who would look great in a cover, instantly identifiable to generations of Americans, Douglas MacArthur with that pipe and sunglasses, Here's how he became a guy that we know, and Eisenhower became president. And I just love that part of it because these men did have screw-ups. They did have mistakes. They did do things wrong and then try to cover up for them. Eisenhower does that throughout his career as well. Everybody does. And sometimes that's just our mind. It's easy for us as historians reading about them to say, wait a minute, you said something completely different 30 years ago, but we don't always remember it that way. <laughs> we don't remember exactly clearly what we might have done 30 years ago. And so I, I really like that. This is a fast read through that part of their lives. No, I think, I mean, there are many misconceptions that we tend to, because we view it through the lens of World War II. 
that George Patton, for example, was incredibly innovative in his ideas about tanks immediately after World War I, and he and Eisenhower wrote provocative articles in the Infantry Journal in 1920, suggesting why the tank was either the future of warfare or at least should have a much more prominent role. But after they were reprimanded for basically contradicting the infantry's doctrine on tanks, Patton says, screw it. He goes back to the horse cavalry and for the next 15 years or so writes articles why tanks will never replace the horse cavalry, why the horse cavalry is more relevant than ever despite his reputation, somewhat earned, as being an innovator, he completely turns his back on his own writings about it and only comes to tanks again right on the eve of World War II, that other officers who had done sort of the hard work of maintaining the mechanized force, of continuing to think about it, and had risked their careers for it, he sort of rejoins them at the end. And then he obviously becomes one of the great tank commanders in military history. But most people don't know that for about a decade, he didn't have anything positive to say about tanks whatsoever. Trying to please the boss is certainly an element of that. And he's, if if no one wants to hear it, well, maybe I'll join the victorious opposition. And by that point, tanks had been, they were just used to supplement the infantry and maybe you'd send a couple of them with, with a few hundred men over the Western front out of the trenches into no man's land. As historians, we can look back and say, oh, you were adapting too and realizing you were wrong. And you didn't stand up and hold the press conference and say, well, I'm, I'm rerouting, as Winston Churchill put it, when he switched parties and then switched back to the conservatives and said, <laughs> so anyone can rat, but it takes really some, some talent to rerat. We look back at him when we say he was a guy who saw the Nazi threat all through these interwar years. But I have a couple of dozen books really here about Churchill right in front of me, as well as about Theodore Roosevelt Jr., a lot on the war, Eisenhower. And if you crack those Churchill books, you'll find that letter sometimes mentioned where he writes and says, well, he doesn't think Germany is a threat, doesn't think Hitler is a threat. And we all have those moments where maybe it doesn't seem so consistent looking back. But the thing that is consistent throughout Generals in the Making is just how dedicated these men are. And if something doesn't work, they're willing to discard it because they want to achieve their goal, their destiny. They know another war is coming and it's going to be about winning it because if they lose that war, nobody's going to care who writes the history. No, I think that one of the things that separates them as the, the great leaders was their willingness to listen to new ideas. One of the common criticisms of the combined general staff school is that it was too reliant on the book answers. It was too reliant on prescribed tactics. And Marshall, conversely, when he takes over the infantry school, he basically says that anybody who has an idea for solving a tactical problem that's better than one of what our instructors are, please come up and tell it. Or as Joseph Stilwell, who was his head of his operations section as an instructor at Fort Benning said, we're open to any screwball idea. And Marshall proved that when he was when he was a command when he was a commander later. When he was chief of staff at the army, he one time he has a staff, his he has three senior officers who are his sort of secretaries. And at one point it consisted of Orlando Ward, who would command an armored division in North Africa, Omar Bradley, who would obviously go on to command 12th Army Group in Europe, and then another lieutenant colonel. And one day after about a week or two on the job, he calls them into his office and he says, gentlemen, I am very disappointed in you. And they're just mortified. What did we do to disappoint the chief of staff? And he says to him, you haven't disagreed with anything I've said. And it's been a week since you've disagreed with anything I've said. How do I know what's right or wrong unless you're challenging me, unless you're making me think and see both sides of it? And they they said, because we haven't 
it just hasn't been anything to disagree with this week. And a week later, they had a paper, a staff paper that they thought was terrible, and they said so to him. And he was like, thank you. I don't know if I'm right in my opinions unless I've seen the reasons I might be wrong. And so to be very tolerant of properly channeled dissent. Patton, for all his imagery of the toughness and the sort of rigidity, he was actually very good at self-criticism and learning from mistakes after the Louisiana maneuvers where his where his second armored got beaten pretty solidly by Eisenhower's third army. Eisenhower was the chief of staff. Walter Kruger was the commander. He came back to them and said, this is my fault. He said, assembled all the men of the division, all the officers and said, this was my fault. We weren't properly prepared. They had been kicking, excuse me for saying kicking, but through all the previous maneuvers, all the core level maneuvers, he said, but we will learn from our mistakes in this. We will start to learn how to do combined arms better. We will start to learn how to how to deploy better, and we will not make these same mistakes again. And sure enough, they didn't. So Patton was very good at learning from his own mistakes and not being rigid and just because it was the way he thought it was. And I would even give MacArthur credit, who had not been necessarily a major air power advocate, but for accepting. And once he was, once George Kenney, General Kenney, showed him what they were capable of doing, altered his strategic mindset for how to fight the Pacific campaign. So I think that was a hallmark of the of the great leaders during the war, was a willingness to accept criticism or dissent from below and a willingness to change and listen to new ideas. Those war games are another moment in the interwar years that's exciting and really flushes out our view of these generals that fight the Second World War and win for the United States. And that's another item that you'll get there. You won't get it in one of these books I mentioned that I have on my shelf that just starts with the war, maybe starts with Pearl Harbor or with D-Day, but you find it here in Generals in the Making. I wanted to jump forward to Eisenhower's later life because I have a unique opportunity with you here. As a presidential speechwriter, you can give me some insight into Eisenhower's delivery. If you've seen Eisenhower on TV, dear listeners, you know that he's pretty stilted. You know, he didn't grow up with TV. I'm sure Ike never took a selfie in his whole life. And so I wanted to ask our guest today if he would have any advice when he's seen those videos of Eisenhower. He's giving those addresses on, say, the U2 or something like that. He's trying to speak to the American people and inspire them. What advice would you give him to help him translate more of what made him a commanding presence at Allied HQ into a commanding presence on TV so that he could speak directly to the American people instead of having what, I'm sorry to say, a little bit of a deer-in-a-headlights look? Well, I have to say that having, having done some work as a, as a military analyst during Operation Iraqi Freedom in 2003, personally, I think it's much harder to be on TV than to write for it. There are other people who probably have the exact opposite view, that it's easy and natural to be on camera. It's harder to come up with to sit down and write the words for it. Eisenhower was actually very good at handling the media. As we talked about the Louisiana maneuvers, one of his jobs as the Third Army Chief of Staff was to keep the journalists, the correspondents away from the commander so that Walter Kruger could go out and see what the troops were doing and make the, make those decisions. And he was so good at it that that was the first time he really sort of came to national prominence. A lot of the military correspondents talked about how intelligent, how clear spoken he was in explaining what was going on. And he was very deft at handling the media during the, during the war itself. You know, General Montgomery, 
who was often very critical of Eisenhower's leadership during the war. But he, one thing he said to, about Eisenhower in his memoirs, he said that no matter what he thought of Eisenhower occasionally as a general, as a strategist, he said Ike was instantly likable, that you could not help but like him when he came into a room. He had that smile. He had an amiability and that you couldn't help but like Ike. And this obviously became part of his slogan, you know, as he ran for president. And Eisenhower, you know, it became clear in later scholarship, the hidden hand presidency, that Eisenhower purposely sort of cultivated an image of amiability rather than intellectualism. And so I'm not saying his stilted speaking was intentional. It's also possible that, yes, TV was a new medium and how well-spoken someone was on TV it wasn't until Kennedy, arguably, that we started to use TV to assess what a leader looked like or how a leader sounded in that medium. So I, I cut Eisenhower some slack. There's another possibility to it, and to sit and say that some leaders also are just better at speaking informally than in informal settings. So taking politics out of the equation, whether you loved him or hated him politically, George W. Bush, President Bush. The son was great at working a rope line, great at working in formal occasions and connecting with people. When he gave public speeches, though, he was always uncomfortable. This is after having been, or at least he always gave the appearance of being uncomfortable. And if you watch the watch videos of any of his speeches, at the end of the speech, after his concluding line and the applause started, he'd always let out a big sigh that it was clear that the sort of formal occasions were not a strong suit. And that's just true for some people, regardless of how well you discipline them, of how well you teach them, um, that it's not always the easiest thing to have that natural theatricality and natural ability to project over a camera. It reminds me of an experience I had writing for a show called Pet News. And you'd put the words in the prompter and we had a fellow who was really amiable. You'd want to sit on that porch you mentioned at home and have a cigar and a beer with this guy. He was really friendly and it, it came through just looking at him on screen when he was talking about the animals. But then, gosh, to get him to read off the prompter to do an intro and a tag, he just could never quite get it. And it, it is really a talent. And that's why for somebody who's not only writing the speeches, but advising people on how to give the delivery, you can't transfer that. that that's why people question the value of political endorsements, right? You can't necessarily go, as Eisenhower finds out with Nixon, not that he's speaking of offhanded remarks. I mean, that's that's totally a real guy when he makes that joke at poor, poor Nixon's expense. The reporter asks him if he can name anything that Nixon had a major hand in, and he says, well, maybe if you give me 10 minutes, I could think of something or something something flippant like that. Yes. He's just trying to kind of amuse those the guys in the press and, and buddy around with them and get himself out of having to give a hard answer. And anyway, it's, poor Dick Nixon ends up taking the brunt of that, and then his whole, his whole idea of running on experience from having been the, the great general's second is blown out of the water because Ike does that. No, exactly. It's definitely something you can't just teach. And I think we've all watched, since I work in politics myself, work in talk radio and have been in news, when I watch him sometimes and you say, gosh, why why don't they do this? How come someone couldn't get him to do that? And I'm sure you experience that. People come up to you and say, why is so-and-so candidate doing that? For instance, with Michael Bloomberg, I know a, a fellow who's been an advisor and worked on Bloomberg's campaign, also was in the Clinton White House. And when he came out in that first debate here in the 2020 primaries, somebody who knew that I, that I was friends with this fellow, 
He said, why? Why didn't he tell him this? Why didn't he do? I said, you can't. I said to the guy, you're a big hockey fan, right? I said, well, how come they don't go out there and say, well, hey, you got it. You can't get caught flat-footed. Watch your puck. Keep your head up when you come up ice. Well, it's easy to tell all those things, but it's really hard to execute it in the moment. And especially when you're dealing with people that all have egos that think they know how to do it, that don't want to do something. That's what made Ronald Reagan so special. Here's a guy who, because he'd been a performer, he was always conscious of the camera seeing him and the camera being on him and knew. Those are the guys that I think would have maybe been able to graft a little of themselves onto Eisenhower. Eisenhower just doesn't have that on TV, but he had so many other great qualities, and here in Generals in the making, we get to see him hone those great qualities, bring himself to the forefront, let the Kansas farm boy, that was his proudest thing, he said, my proudest boast is I'm from Abilene. So he let all that come forward. When we criticize, I think, or critique, let's say, these people who are giving speeches or politicians or generals, it makes us realize that they are just like us and can always improve. No, what they endured was almost sort of a metaphor for what the entire country endured with the Great Depression. And yet when the time came, the country was able to persevere through depression, roll up its sleeves and go through. And then, as you said, the prequel aspect, and I didn't realize this until I got to the end of the book, that everything that you read then about what they did in the war Almost in, in most cases, you could have predicted it. About 80% of the cases, you could find how they behaved in the interwar years, what their experiences were, and said, ah, that's where they got that trait. That's where they got that experience that led them to make these decisions or do these certain things. Isn't that great <laughs> to be able to go back and do that? And no, it's not enough just that they do it. Let's find out how they yeah. do it. And that, that didn't come out of nowhere. It's not, it's not a novel here. These are real men. They're making real decisions. Marshall perfectly predicted what Patton would do in the war. He said he's just simply put one of the best fighting men you'll ever find. But you got to keep a tight leash on him because he'll do or say things that'll give you heartache. Even though he hadn't served, you know, Patton never served directly under Marshall. He knew Patton well enough. And you see Patton's value efficiency reports from the 20s, the one where General Smith says he's be a great asset in wartime, but he's hell in peace or something to that effect. He's a disturbing element in peace. Yeah. And Patton takes that as a great, the greatest compliment he's ever received. But that's the perfect description of Patton's career in the, in the war. It's another great thing that they do there, that they go and you have to tell people in person. You have to give them their criticism face-to-face. And so these are all moments that we get to enjoy in your book where people are really living their lives and not doing it behind closed doors and criticizing. And this is how, even by the end of the war, the Germans end up saying, how is this possible that all of these guys are exceptional, that the Americans are fielding against us? No, exactly. And as I say at the beginning, and when I went into starting the writing of it, of asking the, you know, the Shakespearean, you know, was it some men are born great? Was it this just an intrinsically unique group of 40 individuals that could get this job done? Was it the institutions or their experiences that trained them during the war? Or even allowing the sort of slightly cynical but realistic question of that in a war of with where we send 8 million abroad, would we be able to find in that course 40 guys who were competent at what they were doing? You know, the Shakespearean, some men are born great, some achieve greatness, some have greatness thrust upon them. And so finding it to be the sort of the mix of them. But again, you could see where the origins of what they did, you know, and one question that I get asked a lot sometimes is, what is the army today capable of that? And I say, yeah. You know, J- Joseph Ellis, the Revolutionary War historian, 
he has a line that he uses in his book talks where he says that if you go to Minneapolis or to the Twin Cities, it's the populations the same as the colonies were at the time of the Revolutionary War. And he says you wouldn't go looking for the founders, but you could find them. His point being you could find a group of people in Minneapolis and St. Paul that would be able to write something equivalent of the Constitution, the Declaration. I, I disagree with him. I'm, I'm, I'm a little more skeptical or cynical about our current politics right now. But I think that sentiment is apt that you could find right now in the military, you know, my peers who are all full colonels now, and the two buddies of mine who are still in are going to get their stars pretty soon. I do believe that in that core, there are 40, 50 guys who are as capable as the World War II generals were, if put into the proper circumstances. The only thing I would add to that is that it's more difficult. You know, the Thomas Ricks in his book, The Generals, talks about the decline in generalship. And I think it's a little unfair because how we measure generals is a bit different. It's different to appear as brilliant a general, as brilliant a commander in limited and counterinsurgency conflicts, which are what we tend to fight now, than in a total war such as World War II. Also, the media is very different, that the media had a vested interest in those days in winning the war and therefore was very much hagiographic in its coverage of the generals. Very rarely did they ever criticize the generals, whereas nowadays the media, for better or worse, sees itself in an adversarial position to figures of authority. And therefore, you have you know, the publicity of the, the Stanley McChrystal incident, for example, that in the old days, the media would never have reported that some of his aides made off-color jokes about Joe Biden. But nowadays, the career incentives for a journalist are that's a great scoop. Consequences to a war effort be damned. So the nature of the war and the nature of how we view authority has shifted so much in the, in the generations. I think the talent and the capability are, are still there, very much so, but that the circumstances of how we view them has changed somewhat. I don't know if we can have great anything anymore, but you know, because of that, because that's how you make your career. Go find somebody powerful and cut their legs off and make yourself feel better. And that's why I think it's good that this book embraces the fact that, yes, they were human. Yes, they did have trials, overcame them. You know, they weren't perfect. So I, I like that. I think that embraces that and drags us away from some of that kind of history. No, very much so. I'd like to close with one final question. You dedicate generals in the making to your sons, David and Ari. After thanking your wife, Mariah, you then quote John Adams saying he studied war so his children could study math or the arts. What inspiration do you hope readers will take as they're trying to find their way in the 21st century, especially young readers? How do they learn from these men who saved the 20th century as they make this century their own? Well, as I sort of alluded to earlier, uh, what I hope David and Ari take away is the importance of resilience during tough times. That there's a there's the line, it's a great line in the movie Master and Commander where Russell Crowe playing Captain Jack Aubrey on the funeral of the lieutenant who who throws himself over the side of the sh- of the boat says we don't all become the men that we hope to be. But even if we as we face setbacks, as we face disappointments, the ability to persevere, the ability to stay prepared for if that moment in history does come. Um, there, there were many great officers of that generation who, for one circumstance or another, Jimmy Ord, who dies in, the, in a plane accident in the Philippines in 1938, 
Bradford Chitawith, who gets captured on Bataan and never actually gets to lead after that one battle. Uh, various others, Adna Chaffee, who was the father of the tank corps, who dies of cancer in 1941, whose circumstances, either they retired five years too early before the war, were too young, or fate just didn't have them alive at the time of the war, never got to. But the importance of being prepared for when that moment comes, that these men, not knowing what lay ahead, not knowing that they would be commander, that the supreme commander of allied forces, not knowing that they would lead third army across France, that they nevertheless persevered through the financial setbacks, career stagnation, through the loss of death of a child, death of a wife, divorce, depression, that they still kept going and that when the moment came, they were still there for it. And I think that that's what I would like to be able to impart to not only my sons, but to younger people. And again, I think that's particularly pertinent right now in the day of the pandemic, that our lives have been disrupted in ways that we can't imagine. And we likely have a difficult two, three years or whatever amount of time ahead due to the, the economic repercussions to know that to persevere, it gets better or to the importance of being ready for when your moment in history comes at whatever you end up doing. Well, be prepared is the Boy Scout motto for a reason. And these men that we're speaking of here would have well known the Boy Scouts speaking at the Jamboree. We can go online now and see Eisenhower do things like that. I hope that generals in the making will make people want to learn more about these men because we come to know them at their worst here, at their most trying times in their lives. We've barely scratched the surface here of a really interesting, inspiring read. We haven't gotten to know everything about these men in a long time because we just focus on them in uniform with those stars on their shoulders and their helmets. But we all struggle in life. We hit potholes or even landmines on the road to our dreams. If listeners are looking for encouragement in their pursuit of happiness, I can't think of a better book to recommend than yours. Also, if you have a young person in your life and they're going through hard times and they think nobody ever had it hard before, because we all think that when we're young people, pick up a copy of Generals in the Making for them. Pick up one for yourself. I enjoyed our conversation so much today. I wish you the best of luck with the book, and I thank you again for your time and your service. Thank you very much, Dean. It was a, it was a great honor and a pleasure to be able to talk you today. What put us into uniform, ready to engage the enemy on every continent? Fighting, living, dying. For what? For freedom. That for which men have fought since time began. To be free. Again, the book is Generals in the Making. How Marshall, Eisenhower, Patton, and their peers became the commanders who won World War II. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at the HistoryAuthor.com page for this episode. By buying the book through us, you help keep the flux capacitor on our time machine humming like usual. My thanks to Benjamin Runkle for joining us and for introducing us to the men who led America to victory over the Axis powers emerging from an interwar America that stacked the deck against them at every turn. I also highly recommend Donald L. Miller's book, Vicksburg, Grant's Campaign That Broke the Confederacy. You can find that interview in our archives, and while you're at it, you can let us know what you think of the books we've discussed today and the interviews on Twitter at HistoryDean, 
Instagram at the History Author Show or Facebook.com slash History Author. And remember, we have a YouTube channel now with our full archive of almost 200 interviews. That's it for this episode of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for our next all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio. And if you're an iTunes subscriber, please take a minute to leave us a review. Until our next trip into the past together, thanks so much for time traveling with us today, and have a great week. And then came the day Broadway wasn't prepared When the newsboys yelled extra, war is declared But the hand that held glasses of wine in the air Were the first to hold guns when I rode over there The boys won the war and came home from the fight The last night on Broadway was almost his night but ever since then, it's a different street. Gone are the places where the gang used to meet. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears.